died for crooked, deep down people like us. People just trying to squeeze us and our camel through the needle's eye, a reference to our love for money and just different stuff like that. And uh, we wanted to start the sermon that way um, with kind of a a light and a humorous approach because uh, really it's not going to be a whole lot lighter or more humorous from here. We'll get a little bit, there's a couple funny spots. Uh, in our study here today, but, but this is a serious topic. We're going to look at the crookedness that we all have, and we all have it deep down. Now, I look out here, most of you look very nice today. A few notable exceptions. <laughs> I will not point out. No, I'm kidding. But, and, and you all look good. Most of you probably showered and, you know, kind of got cleaned up today and smell halfway decent. But, but deep down, you're crooked. You, you got issues. You're messed up. And we don't like to think about that a whole lot because we're here at church and we like to put on a face that we're good and we're happy. But, but we all have real issues and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, this series for us, this Who Is This, is a desire to have an encounter with Jesus. This is the question that was repeatedly asked after people had an encounter with Jesus, after Jesus uh, stilled a storm with just his words, after he overturned uh, the, temp- the tables in the temple. After he claimed to be the son of God, after he uh, forgave a person's sin, they responded, who is this? And so what we're doing in this series is we're having a a key look at who Jesus is and what his core message was about. We looked really at the climax of it last week, looking at the resurrection, but but now we're going back to kind of the beginning of of the the core essence of what Jesus' uh, ministry and story was about. And so here's, here's where this is headed, just as you think about the rest of this series. This week, the question we're basically asking is, what's the matter with people? Next week, we'll look at what's so special about Jesus. Then we'll look at what was behind his death. And then we'll look at how can I really know him? And so this is all building on each other. So I hope uh, that you're here, you're back. I hope you'll keep coming back. And I hope you'll see this kind of as a unit. Uh, Rather than doing it just in one message, we decided to spread it out. Um, But the question we're looking at first here is this question, what's the matter with people? How many of you think it's more fun to think about what's the matter with other people? (laughs) Right? It is. But but this is an opportunity to think, what's the matter with people in general? Yes, but... What's the matter with me? And so I acknowledge, especially after a song like that, this is a little bit of a hard left turn. Um, so let's, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to, to open our hearts and give us a receptivity to him. So, Father, that is what we want. We want to be sensitive to your spirit. We pray that you would search us. God, you know all things. And we pray that you would just give us the ability to understand even our own hearts a bit more. Your word tells us that our hearts are deceitful. Who can know them? But you do. And so give us insight, we pray today, as we look at this, uh, the, this issue of sin. It's our biggest problem. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So that is what we're looking at, is what did Jesus say about sin? When Jesus uh, was thinking about his, his core message and the core thing, sin was a big part of that. And in fact, if you don't understand what we talk about today, the rest of this series honestly doesn't make sense. You'll think that Jesus came only to be a good example, only to be a good moral teacher, only to do some stuff to help people. But, but you'll miss the core of why Jesus came. Jesus came fundamentally to deal with the problem of sin. To deal with the problem of sin personally and to deal with the problem of sin cosmically. Jesus' death and resurrection gives personal individuals hope 
that they can have a new life. And it also initiates the undoing, uh, or it begins to undo all the effects of sin that we see around us in the world. And so if we're going to talk about sin, since that's a word we tend to use only here in church, let's define what we're talking about when we talk about sin. There's two definitions I want to give to you. Uh, both of them represent uh, some, some of the really the core ideas of how the Bible describes or defines sin. So here's the first one. Uh, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So sin is breaking the law. God says, don't touch, we touch. God says, don't, don't think this way, we, we think this way. It's, it's, another biblical word would be transgression. Right In the Lord's Prayer, for, forgive all my trespasses, as I forgive those who trespass against me. What do you do when you trespass? The sign says, no trespassing, and you go over it, right? That, that's, that's one of the aspects of sin. It's breaking the law. It's breaking the rules. And importantly here, it's doing it in act and attitude and even nature. We'll talk more about nature in a, in a moment, but, but act. So doing things that are inherently against God's law. So God says, don't tell a lie, you lie. God says, don't use my name in vain, you use his name in vain. God says, you should have no other gods before me, you worship something else instead, right? So there's, there's acts, but then there's also attitudes. There's thoughts, there's motivations, and all of it, if it's against the way that God has designed us to live, the Bible would call it sin. Now here's the second definition, this also is a big idea that you get when you look at the whole scripture, is that sin is slavery. Sin is slavery, slavery to anything other than God. In fact, Jesus in John 8 says that anyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. This is a big idea as you look at the Exodus story, that the people of God in Exodus were in slavery, and he, they were pulled out of that through the blood of a lamb. We'll talk about that in a few weeks, how it's the blood of the true lamb, Jesus Christ, that pulls us out of slavery. Anytime we have something in our life that we value more that we put more hope, more joy, more affection into than God. That's, that's an idol. We worship that and we become enslaved to it. It rules us. It dictates us. This is the nature of what sin is about. And it's because of sin. Sin is underneath so, so much of the pain and the different things that we've experienced. Sin is behind the cruel words that will speak to belittle or to humiliate somebody. Sin is behind the, the cold bitterness that won't forgive. It's behind the inability to overcome that self-destructive bad habit. It's even behind the love that makes you have that, first, that, that bad habit in the first place. Especially the ones that, you know, this is hurting me, this is killing me, this is going to hurt everyone I love. Why do we do that? Because we're enslaved to it. Sin is behind the bold arrogance that can't admit when you're wrong. Sin is also behind the, the self-hatred, the self-pity that leads you to throw a pity party and be passive-aggressive. It's behind all of that. It's behind the, the internal anger. Men, you, you just feel angry a lot. You don't even know why. You don't even know what it's about. Maybe it's, you feel slighted. Maybe things haven't turned out the way you want. But there's just, you're a nice guy on the outside. People go, oh, he's, a, he's the gentlest guy I ever know. And yet there's these times where you just feel like this volcano is about to erupt in your heart of anger. Sin is underneath that. 
And sin is underneath the despair that you feel when you just think, there's no way this can change. There's no way this relationship can change. There's no way my, my behavior could change. There's no way my attitude could change. I'm just stuck here forever. Sin is underneath that. And Jesus came to expose sin and then to conquer it. We'll talk, uh, we'll talk more in the coming weeks about how Jesus conquered sin and what he did to, to allow sin to be conquered in our lives. But, but today especially, we want to look at what Jesus does to expose it. And this is why it's painful. It's painful to have sin brought into the light. But that's what Jesus is going to do, especially in this first passage. So what we have today is um, we've got three main passages we're going to look at. And uh, three main ideas, well, an idea that goes with each point. And, um, and normally we would go through just one passage or we'll go through a book of the Bible. This time we're going to look at, at three specific passages. And the first one is in John 3. You, you read it a moment ago. Uh, John Cronwald came up here and, and read that. And uh, we started in verse 19. Really to understand the context, you actually have to start at the beginning of the chapter. We're not going to read through it. But this is where Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Pharisees, goes uh, to meet Jesus at night. He says, Jesus, you're really a great guy. And, and Jesus says, well, listen, uh, unless someone's born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus goes, born again? He'd, ne- he'd never heard that phrase, right? You've heard, anyone hear that phrase before, born again? He'd never heard it. He's going, what? That doesn't make any sense. How could I go back inside my mother's womb? That doesn't, no one's going to like that, right? So, so, and Jesus is going, aren't you the teacher of Israel? And so he, Jesus goes in this whole thing, and he's, he's teaching a lot of different stuff. We'll look at more of this in the coming weeks. Um, and in verse 16, we get the most famous verse in Christianity. Uh, perhaps you've seen it at a football game, you know, behind the goalposts or on Tim Tebow's eye black or something. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is all in the midst of this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus about how you have to be born again. If you don't have new life that comes into your heart by God's Spirit, you'll never be able to enter the kingdom or know God. He says God loves the world. He gave his only son. Verse 17, For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus will expose sin. But he doesn't do it to condemn primarily. He does it because he wants to save. And the only way to save, the only way to provide the prescription is to first get the diagnosis, right? If, you, if, you've, got this, if you've got this horrible disease eating out of you, if you've got a kind of cancer and you don't have a doctor willing to tell you, can you imagine that? Imagine if you went in the doctor for your kind of annual thing and the doctor found something and didn't tell you. It would, it would kill you. Well, you have a condition that will kill you. And Jesus is going to tell you what it is. But he does it not to destroy you. He does you because he wants to save and heal. So it says, verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So if, if you believe in Christ, and that doesn't mean you just agree that he was you know, important or something. It's, it's you trust in him. Whoever, whoever trusts in him is not condemned. That's great news. That's, that's why Jesus came. That's how you're saved, is trusting in him. But whoever doesn't is condemned already because he hasn't believed, he hasn't trusted in the name of the only Son of God. You go, well, gosh, that just doesn't seem fair. Well, how, how does God make this decision to condemn? Okay, here's what it says, verse 19. This is where we read. And this is the judgment. Your translation may say, this is the verdict. 
God's the judge, and God's the righteous judge. Uh, last year, I sat on a jury for a civil case, and um, it was a kind of a construction thing, and I, I won't go into all the details of it, but we eventually got to, after I think nine or ten days of trial, we got to a place of deliberation, and we had certain amounts of facts available to us, and we made the best decision we could. Then after that, we, the lawyers came in, and they told us all these things that we didn't know about, right? All these things that weren't admissible into law and whatever else, and none of them really would have changed our decision, but it was like, huh, that would been interesting to know. Listen, God's making a verdict. He has all the information. No one comes into him after the fact and goes, hey, hey, God, I think you forgot something. Doesn't happen. God has the verdict. What's the verdict? What's the judgment? Why, why would God condemn people who don't trust Christ? Here, here's what it is, verse 19. The light has come into the world. The light has come into the world. Oh, okay, what does that mean? Well, in, in John, you see this over and over in, in John 1, and in John 8, uh, Jesus is called the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. So, so the lights come into the world. Jesus is saying, I've come into the world. Here's the, here's the verdict. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. First thing that we see here is that sin is rooted in the heart. Sin is about what you love. Sin is not primarily about what you do or don't do. That, that's part of it, right? You do certain actions. You have certain attitudes. But what's underneath that, the root of it, is what you love. Your affections. Things that captivate you. And what this is saying is that you will ignore the sun... You'll ignore the light. You'll ignore Jesus because you love darkness. You, you love your sin. It feels good. It makes you happy. You're the center of the universe in your own sin. And so you won't go to Jesus because you know that in him's light and he'll expose it and it'll be seen for what it is. Sin grows in the dark. You don't let people know when it's secret. Listen, God knows. If you'll bring it to him, he'll shine his light on it and, and help you work through it. But if you hide, sin grows in the dark. This is fundamentally what sin is. Whether you define sin as breaking the law or you define sin as slavery, it's fundamentally about a worship disorder. It's about a, a, a love problem. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 1, verse 25. He says, that all of us have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So you have the blessed creator forever who made everything and instead we love the created stuff. We exchange it. It's a, it's a, it's a love disorder. It's a worship disorder. God says in the book of Jeremiah that he offers himself as a fountain of living water. I mean, just imagine a fountain, a beautiful, refreshing, pure, blue, crisp, cold fountain. God says, that's what I'm like. You thirsty? Come to the fountain. And what sin is, what evil is, it says in Jeremiah 2, is saying, I don't really want that. I'm going to dig a hole over here and collect some rainwater. 
and it's dirty, and it's dingy, and it's polluted, and it's lukewarm, might make me sick. I'd prefer this. That's what sin is. That's what evil is. You go, well, I, I, I'm not a bad sinner. I mean, I'm not like Hitler. I'm not like Saddam Hussein. I'm not like Osama bin Laden. I'm not like, yeah, but have you ever made that exchange? We have said, God, I, I, I know you offer yourself, and that, that's sad, but, but I want this instead. If you've done that, you're a sinner. We've all done that. That's what it is to be sin, to, to be a sinner. It's an exchange of this stuff. I think one of the, the most interesting biblical examples of this is what you read in Exodus 32 of the golden calf. The people of God had been in slavery in Egypt. They'd been rescued through the Passover lamb that we looked at at Good Friday, if you were here for that. They, they were rescued from that. Then they're in the wilderness, and, uh, and, and they've made a covenant with God. They've come to him, and they've said, God, we want to love you. We want to serve you. And God says, I want you to do that too. And it's like a wedding day, right? Do you take, do you, Israel, take God to be your lawfully wedded husband? They say, yes, Absolutely. And then just, just about a month later, a little bit more than a month, Moses is off and he's meeting with God up on the mountain and God's writing the law on the, these tablets of stone. And he comes back and the people have made a golden calf and they're worshiping it as their God. Now they had seen God as the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke and they heard his voice and they knew that he wasn't a little calf. But, but their idolatrous hearts wanted to worship something they could see and touch and, and that they could contribute to, right? They had given their gold earrings and, and jewelry to be able to craft this thing. They, they, they made a God that fit what they wanted. So even though they had married God a month before, this is like they're having an affair on their honeymoon. So that song, there was this girl, she was made for me. She stood me up our wedding day, now she runs around. She's drunk all the time, but I'd die to make her mine. That's what sin is. Sin is saying, God, I, I know we're married, but let me do what I want. And, and, and that's, that's why sin is so serious, even if it feels to you like it's small sins. No, I'm not, I haven't killed anybody. Well, congratulations. You've really set the bar high. Do you ever hear someone go, well, it was just a little adultery, no big deal. I hope not. Though that's how sick, that's how sinful we are. Some people think that way. But, but just a little adult, no. Even the smallest sin is adultery before God. It's wrong, it's sinful. And it's not just wrong and sinful, but it's irrational. It's irrational. Here's what uh, Wayne Grudem says. He says, we should note that all sin is ultimately irrational. It really did not make sense for Satan to rebel against God in the expectation of being able to exalt himself above God. Nor did it make sense for Adam and Eve to think that there could be any gain in disobeying the words of their creator. These were foolish choices. It is not the wise man, but the fool who says in his heart there is no God. It is the fool in the book of Proverbs who recklessly indulges in all kinds of sins. Though people sometimes persuade themselves that they have good reasons for sinning, when examined in the cold light of truth on the last day, it will be seen in every case that sin ultimately just does not make sense. 
doesn't. And we rationalize it. We feel like we're justified in it. So I'm going to give you just a, a practical example. This may f- feel silly to you, but, but what I'm going to explain to you is, is adultery against God. So I've never, I've never bowed down and worshipped a golden calf. Anybody have a golden calf in their house that you occasionally worship? No, okay. Didn't think so. But I have a different idol. I call it the pantry idol. See, uh, and some of you, I've, I've told you this before. Um, when I grew up, my, my parents, I, I was an only child, and my parents had a st- just stocked pantry. I mean, it always had good snacks and cookies. It's amazing I turned out so skinny. <laughs> and, uh, and it was packed. And so when I got married, I had the expectation that that's how our, our pantry would be. And just so you know, expectations, especially brought into marriage, are just predetermined premeditated resentments. That's what that is. You should write that down. Some of you, yeah, that's the best thing you needed to hear today for some of you. Like you brought all these expectations, you know, you're not married to your mom, guys. Get over it, okay? So, so and Molly, Molly does an incredible job of actually meeting a lot of my expectations, and I try to meet hers. Um, but there's been times when, and this, this is especially bad on like a Saturday afternoon, you know, you're kind of, bored and lounging around and nothing to do and so I walk over to the pantry I just I got I need a snack you need to pick me up you open the pantry I look in there's a lot of vegetables <laughs> not what I'm looking for right and you just kind of look around and then you know Molly be over on the couch or something and here's what I'll do You know what I should do at that point? I should build a statue of myself. I should put it in the pantry, and I should bow down and worship it. Because what I'm saying at that point is, I deserve to have everything I want. There's only one person that deserves to have everything he wants. That's God. So I'm putting myself in the place of God. I'm, I'm worshiping myself. And I, and I could justify and go, well, I didn't, I didn't complain. Really? I didn't say anything. Yeah, the, uh, was enough. Revealed an attitude that, that thought I deserved better. And, and, and that may seem silly, and seem, but our lives are filled with little moments like that where it's as though we are imagining that the throne of God is available and we're sort of shoving him off of it and trying to hoist ourselves up on. God says no. It's irrational. doesn't make sense. We justify, we rat. But, but, but it, it's crazy, and it's dark, and it's part of all of us. Sin is rooted in the heart, and it corrupts everybody. Nobody's exempt from this. And no one can say, well, I, it's not just me, or I'm, it's not me. No, no one can say that. It's everybody. And so uh, go to Romans chapter 3. You're in John. Go to the right of the book of Acts and then the book of Romans. And in Romans 3, this is on page 941, if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. In Romans 3.10, we see that sin corrupts everybody. This is a quote from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. It says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All right, in case you missed it, no one does good. Right? How many people are affected by this? All. This is the point of this repetition, of the, is, is, is no one is exempt. There's nobody who hasn't at some point carved out a little cistern that can hold no water in exchange for the fountain of living waters. There's no one that, that hasn't done that. Even, even the good we often do, we do with self-promoting, selfish motives. So, so we're, we're totally... This is why that song, we're crooked deep down in ways that we can't even unravel and understand, but, but it's real, it's true. It's because we have a sinful nature. And we sin because we have a sinful nature. This is how we come in to the world. <clears throat> Fascinating quote here from Wayne Grudem. He says this, think about this. Even while asleep, an unbeliever, though not committing sinful ac- actions or actively nurturing sinful attitudes, is still a sinner in God's sight. He or she still has a sinful nature that does not conform to God's moral law. Now that's a deeper thought to think about. Here's a simpler way to say it. If sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. That's from Tyler Johnson, my good friend. He's the lead pastor of all of Redemption. If sin were blue, we'd, be, we'd all be Smurfs. This is part of, it's just, it's part of every part of who you are. And this is how you come into the world. And if you want an example of this, look no further than a baby. I want to introduce you to a baby named Finley. Take a few minutes and look at this. This is Daddy's cell phone. No touchy. Finley's cell phone. You can have. Look, Finley, never touch an outlet. Don't look at the Look, never touch. No. No. Okay? Alright, Finley. Yes, yours. No. Bad. Good. If we don't, we're gonna blow. I bet the air fuse. Sing it to me. That's not yours. That's not yours. 
This is yours. No offense. Bad girl. This is yours. You can put it this one. That's safe. You guys are that are parents. You, that looks familiar, doesn't it? Right. You don't have to teach a kid to lie, and I, and I love that. Right. Twice, it's like this is the drink you can go to, or this one. She goes the wrong one every time. Tom Schrader, who's the uh, teaching pastor over at our Gilbert congregation, he he has an illustration I've loved for for years, where he says if you had two, if you had a vulture at the back of the room, imagine a, a big vulture back there, and you had a bowl of lettuce, and you had a bowl of hamburger. And you let the vulture loose. Which one would the vulture go for? The hamburger. Okay, let's get a new vulture. We put a new vulture back there. Which one would he go for? We got a hundred vultures. Which one? Right. Always the hamburger. He could go to either one, but 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 his nature is to go towards the hamburger. In the same way, the nature of a human being, because of sin, is to go for sin. It's to go for selfishness. Now, this is key. You've got to get this here. You are not, this does not mean that you're as bad as you could be. You could be worse, okay? You're not as bad as you could be, but you're as bad off as you could be. You could be worse, but your situation couldn't be worse. Because, Scripture says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Some people go, you know what? I'm a good person, I'm going to stand before God, he'll judge me, you know, and I'll just get what I deserve. And, and what you deserve, so you know, if that's you, it's death. Because you've belittled God. You've ignored him. You've disobeyed him. You've rebelled against him. He's absolutely just to punish you. And you're hopeless apart from his grace. This is what J.I. Packer says, and this is in the, the quote from that study guide that we have about this series. Total depravity declares that no part of us is untouched by sin. Total depravity is just another way to talk about sin. And therefore, no action of ours is as good as it should be, and consequently, nothing in us or about us ever appears meritorious in God's eyes. We cannot earn God's favor, no matter what we do. Unless grace saves us, we're lost. Do you realize that? See, we, we look at a baby, and we kind of go crooked deep down. Everybody's crooked deep down. And there's this tendency in us to go, well, if everybody's like this, then surely God's going to just cut everyone some slack. The Bible says no. The Bible says there's nothing you can do to make you right with it. Because even your good things are tainted with sin. This is why our only hope is Jesus. This is why uh, over these next few weeks, we're going to look at, at what was so special about Jesus. What was it about Jesus that was so different than what we are as sinners that, that he actually can save us? And we're going to look at what, what did it mean for him to die and why was that so significant? It's because he came to live and die to overcome this problem of sin. 
We have to get this. And we have to embrace that it actually applies to us too. The temptation to deny it, we need to admit that it's, it's who we are apart from him. And so I, I want to finish this with, uh, with, by going to 1 John 1. This will be the last passage I have you turn to. This is on page 1021 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the same author, uh, same disciple of Jesus, John, who wrote the, the book of John. Now this is his first letter, 1 John. And he's going to give us here five approaches to dealing with sin. And now he's writing to people who are followers of Christ. So he's writing to people who have believed in Jesus. And so this is important because you have to, if you're here and you're a Christian, you have to know you still battle with sin. You hopefully feel that and are sensitive to that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to know the Christians really struggle with sin. That's why you don't like so many of them. That's why they're mean. That's why they're jerks, right? Because they're sinners. They may, they may act like they're not wrong, and John's going to actually talk about that. The Bible confronts even the sin of believers, and it says there are five approaches to dealing with this. Now, before we get to the five approaches, John reiterates this idea of light, right? Light and darkness, huge theme in his writings. And in verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him, that's from Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Right? Jesus is the light of the world. In God, God is light. There's no darkness at all. That's why God can't accept even just a little bit of sin. Because there's no darkness in him. Only light. Even the smallest amount of darkness. Not permissible. So then this passage, verse, verses 6 through 10, it's going to give us five if-then statements. Five ways that we can approach sin. Three of them are negative. And, and, they act, and they alternate. And then two of them, uh, towards the middle, are positive. So the first way, first approach to dealing with sin is hypocrisy. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You say you have fellowship with God. You say you're close to him, but you're walking in the darkness? You're, you're kidding yourself. You're, you're being a hypocrite. The result of that? You lie. You may be lying to yourself. You may be lying to others. But if the pattern of your life, the walk of your life, is in a pattern of sin, rather than in the pattern of the light, you should question whether you really know it. That's one approach, is hypocrisy. The next approach, verse 7, is a better one. It's an approach of obedience. If we say we have fellowship with him, or I'm sorry, verse Verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So instead of saying that you have fellowship with him and walking in darkness, this is saying if you walk in the light, if by his grace, because you've been made alive by his spirit, if you are now able to have more and more darkness left behind and get closer and closer to him since he is light, and you're able to walk in the light that he has... There's fellowship there. There's closeness there. Some of you have wondered, why do I feel so far from God? It's because of sin. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, you, you are, there's no condemnation for you. But, but your experience of the closeness of the presence of God that you feel, it, it, it's contingent on your obedience. 
And if you don't walk in the light, don't, don't be surprised when you go, God doesn't feel close to me. Walk in the light as he's in the light. And, and there's fellowship there, and there's the assurance that his blood cleanses you from sin. Right? This is, this is key. It's not your ability to stay in the light that cleanses you from sin. It's Jesus' blood that cleanses you from sin and allows you to stay in the light. That's a key difference. Here's a third approach to dealing with sin. Verse 8. Denial of sinful nature. This would be that approach. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this is the person who says, I'm not a sinner. I'm I'm a good person. I, I don't have sin. Right, you've, you've heard the debate forever. It's, it's raged on about are people fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? Which is it? Well, according to the Bible, it's, it's bad. You're made in his image, but, but you're fundamentally bad. Right? No one is righteous. No one does good. They've all become worthless. To get, right? You, you got that? It, it, the answer to the question is are people basically good? No! No, we're crooked deep down. We're not as bad as we could be. We're as bad off, though. And so if you deny this, what does it say? It says you deceive yourself. You can believe whatever you want, but God says you're wrong. You're not seeing it clearly. You're you're irrational. Here's the fourth approach. Again, a good one is is confession. This is verse 9, favorite verse for I know some of you. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whereas denial of sinful nature, say this isn't a problem, I don't have this problem. Confession says, not only do I have this problem, but I have specific examples to confess. And I go to God and I confess that. And to confess it, right? you're not filling God in on information he didn't know. What you're doing is you're agreeing with God about what he already says. You're saying, God, I am going to choose to see this act, this attitude, the same way you do. And I confess that it is as ugly, as horrific, as dark as you say. I agree with you, God. I'm sorry. Forgive me. That's not something you just do once. You you should do it every time you, you notice that you sin. We should be constantly confessing. And and what's the promise that we have? What's the then statement? That we'd be forgiven and cleansed. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Now now that word just is, is amazing. Think about this. It's saying if you confess your sin, it would be unjust for God to not forgive you. You go, what? Yeah, that's right. It, wouldn't be, it would be wrong for God to not forgive you if you confess your sin. How could that be? Well, because, again, this is if you're a follower of Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you've trusted in him, what's happened is all the, the punishment that you deserve for your sin has already landed on Jesus. He already paid it. That's why uh, his last words were, it is finished, paid in full. All right, it's done. And so for God to then punish you again would be unjust. He'd be punishing you twice, right? Once in Jesus and once yourself. So if you're his follower and you come to him and you say, God, this is, you don't minimize it, right? You don't go, 
well, God, I know everyone sins, and I kind of blew it, and I know you'll forgive me. That's not confessing your sin. Confessing is saying, God, I see this as, it's as bad as you say it is. Please forgive me. It's humble. It's contrite. It's broken. And, and the scripture here says, God has to. Because the punishment you deserve has already been poured out on his son. And then he doesn't just forgive you, he cleanses you. And there's a process as you continually confess sin that he, he cleanses you more and more of that sin. He, he allows you to, to come more and more into the light. It's a good way to walk. It's a good approach to dealing with sin is to confess it, to confess it a lot. Then finally, here's the last one. And the last one is, is negative. And I think it's maybe John's way of saying, what are you going to do? He says, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is a denial of sinful action. So before it was a denial of nature. I, 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 don't, I don't have sin. This says, if we say we have not sinned, so if you're so deceived that you would say, I've never sinned before, then you're calling God a liar. You like being called a liar? You ever have that when you've told the truth and someone called you a liar? They question your truthfulness? Whew. That's not, that makes you mad, doesn't it? I think God feels. Don't call God a liar. I remember one time, preaching at this little church. They met in a double-wide trailer up in the Tano, uh, Tano Basin kind of area, and I got to do a pulpit fill thing there one time, and the, the preacher was on vacation, and so I'm there preaching, and, and before the sermon, they had an elder got up and was like, hey, let's do prayer requests and, you know, praise report. And this, there was, you know, 15 or 20 people there. And this lady off in the corner is like, I just want to thank God that I have not sinned all week. And I'm like, back up from her. Like, I, there's lightning going to strike here any minute. You know, and, and you may go, well, clearly that's not me. I sin all the time. Have you confessed it? Or you're just sort of operating on this cavalier, callous sort of, well, God's got to forgive me. If so, I hope that what you see here is that this sin, this, this is adultery on your honeymoon with God. He takes it so seriously that he gave up his son for his blood to cover your sin. It's a big deal. So if you're here and you up to this point would say, I, I'm exploring Christianity. I, I don't know totally what I think of this. Here's what I hope you'll do. I hope you will embrace the truth that you are a sinner and that there's no hope for you apart from Jesus. I, I hope that that's the main thing you take away today. If you're here and you are wrecked by sin, I hope that you will see that, that God did something in sending his son so that he could solve this problem because you know you have it. And if you're here and in, you're more in a callous, kind of hard-hearted place, I pray that you would see that this sin is in your life that it dishonors God, it robs you of joy, and it makes him seem really small. And I hope that even in our time of response, you'll take some time to confess that, to be cleansed, to be renewed, and then to be able to walk in the light. 
We'll continue this next week as we look at who Jesus is, what was so special about him, and what did he accomplish. But let's pray. Lord, we agree with you that um, we are sinners in need of grace. We can't earn your favor no matter what we do. Unless you save us, we're lost. And so I pray that you would help us to respond accordingly. I pray that we would... um, you would help us to see our sin as as you see it and then to be able to cast ourselves on Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen.